All right, welcome to Legal Tech Week for May 21st, 2021. I am Bob Ambrogi, I'm the host, and uh, we have uh, some of our usual lineup today and a couple of guest panelists today joining us as well. So uh, we're gonna go around and make our introductions and then we'll get into the topics of the week. So uh, let me start with our guests. Uh, Roy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a reporter, a columnist at uh, Bloomberg Law. I cover uh, big law firms. Um, I write a weekly column on sort of the news of the day in the big law scene. Uh, a lot of times it uh, focuses on whatever, kind of like this, whatever the big news story is. And uh, sometimes it's on the legal tech world. So uh, before that, I was a reporter at the American Lawyer, and um, like Molly just learned, uh, also at the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. So I'm still based in Chicago, and uh, yeah, that's what I do. Well, thanks for doing it. Julie, how about you? Hi, Bob and everyone here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Julie Shabawali, and I'm a legal tech journalist. I have a monthly column with the Canadian Bar Association and I've been writing about legal tech for more than 10 years and um, I also have a day job at the Law Society of Saskatchewan here in Canada but I do have Chicago roots so if we want to talk deep dish pizza or the Cubs more than happy to do that as well. Well uh, keeping with the uh, Chicago theme here uh, let's see Molly let's introduce yourself. Sure, Molly McDonough. I'm a past editor and publisher of the ABA Journal and uh, had the pleasure of working with Julie uh, in that role and Victor and, and Bob. Uh, and I also am a media consultant and strategist based in the, still based in Chicago and uh, I, I'm a producer for the podcast Legal Talk Today with the Legal Talk Network. All right, and uh, let's see, I think last but not least of our Chicago people, Victor. Yep, uh, my name is Victor Lee, Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal, focusing on business of law and technology. Um, you know, it's Chicago, but um, it feels like it feels like Miami out here today. It's like 82 degrees and humid. My AC is on. My dog is miserable. I'm not doing much better. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that won't come through today. <laughs> well, hopefully we can cheer you up. Moving east, uh, Victoria. Hey everyone, my name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter with ALM's Legal Tech News, where I cover technology and cybersecurity in the legal tech industry. And I don't have any Chicago and I don't even think Midwest connections, but I've been to the city of Chicago twice. So I'm going to count that for something. All right. Uh, and then uh, more east to Joe Patrice. Hey, Joe Patrice from <clears throat> Above the Law and uh, Thinking Like a Lawyer the podcast. Um, I have watched the Blues Brothers about a hundred times. So I think that counts as a citizen. So uh, that's my Chicago. All right, and then uh, down to uh, bourbon country with uh, Steve. Hi, Steve Embry. I uh, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads about legal innovation and uh, legal technology. Prior to that, I practiced law in, a big, in big law for 30 plus years, uh, primarily as a mass tort lawyer and uh, as I said before we started, I had a job offer once in Chicago, but I didn't take it. So I don't guess that really qualifies. 
Yeah. Best I can do. <laughs> no, I don't know. My, my, my connection to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin is way back when I used to write a syndicated column called uh, Legal Online, it was called. It was all about the web and online stuff. And uh, it, they, it ran the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. It was one of the many papers that used to run that. So that was back when you had to read about the internet in print publications because nobody had, uh, <laughs> nobody, was, nobody was online. Um, all right. Well, I uh, got a bunch of stories to get to today. And uh, in oh, and I should mention uh, Zach is away. Uh, I think he's traveling, and I think he's actually going to be away for a couple of weeks. He said, uh, Nikki is away, uh, and Caroline I think was just out drinking all afternoon or something. I think it was basically her excuse. <laughs> so that, but that's I don't okay. Know why that's uh, mutually exclusive? But okay. No, no, I know, but, but, but that doesn't stop some of us. Um, but uh, so uh, yesterday was Molly's birthday. Happy birthday, Molly. So she gets Thank the you. honors of, of presenting the first story today for us to discuss. Yeah, so um, my story isn't, hasn't been super widely reported, but um, I, I think it's a pretty big deal and, and, and pretty interesting. Um, a, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to, to work with UNITAD, which is the investigative, UN investigative team um, to um, promote accountability for crimes committed by Daesh the, uh, or ISIL in Iraq. And uh, that resulted in a publication after lots of interviews with investigators and technologists and uh, war crimes prosecutors. And what was the, the publication that I participated in was uh, really about um, how uh, this small U UN entity is harnessing technology in, uh, to investigate and capture evidence and, and preserve evidence um, uh, adhering to international standards um, uh, in a really meaningful way. And so it was a really, I hope you get a chance to look through the document. I'll, I'll publish, I'll uh, post a, a copy uh, of the link uh, in the chat. Um, you know, they really, they partnered, they had some really unique partnerships with Microsoft uh, Cognitive, Microsoft and working through Cognitive Services. Um, and what they did was kind of created this engine uh, that they call Zeteo, which means to seek and reveal. And it uses AI and machine learning to capture just enormous amounts of data. As, as we know, the um, ISIL use was not shy about um, their, their activities and crimes, and they published a ton of content um, on the web, um, almost too much to filter through without using technology. And so this is a TAO system uh, with using at Microsoft Azure uh, can really pull enormous amount of uh, data into it uh, and use AI and machine learning to build, to um, not only sort, but identify insights and track uh, so that they're able to make connections that a, a human wouldn't be able to do using the, uh, without a, a tech assisted approach. And in combination with that, um, using uh, the using relativity and e-discovery software, they created an internal system for evidence management called ELMS, uh, which really helps them um, track and uh, document every little piece that uh, of evidence that's useful. Um, and then it just like on a personal level, I just thought that it was really impressive how they set up. Uh, uh, all of their tech efforts with a trauma-informed approach. And that includes from their witness 
um, investigations protecting witnesses um, and protecting, ISIL had a massive um, sexual slavery uh, ministry as part of their, as part of their, um, their nefarious activities. And so there's a ton of content that's really sensitive uh, and, and disturbing for investigators. And so they, they have a lot of um, built-in mechanisms to shield investigators and prosecutors as they're reviewing evidence so that they're not being re-exposed. And then they also have, you know, in-person types of things. They've like even partnered with Sesame Street uh, with videos for children um, who are in um, witness rooms being interviewed. So it, it's a it's an incredible effort, and um, and and it was a, a privilege to be able to work on on this project and learn more about it. And I'm and I, it, what was really interesting for me is that a lot of these technologies that we talk about um, on the cutting edge are futuristic almost of what what we think machine learning can do. Um, we talk about it in the hypothetical, and this is really the first time I've seen um, how it's being used in the real world, and, and how these um, how these technologies are really being used to bring in in multiple languages, um, multiple Arabic languages, uh, tra translation, video identification, all these components into a single system uh, to to track and preserve evidence. So that's it. It's really amazing. What, what it, where is the data coming from? Are they just pulling things off of social media and, and sources like that? Or where so are they there's some the of that. So it's, it's a mix of, I think at one point I was told uh, they had 15,000 cell phones uh, captured from battlefields. Uh, so they have cell phones and laptops and drones that were captured. And so it's, it's that data from those devices is uploaded into the system is uh, and then and then parsed and then it, the public facing web data and dark web data uh, is also added into the system. That's really amazing. Anybody In addition to like financial records and um, you know it's 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 a monumental task. Uh, and the, the reason it's news for me on my list is that uh, this report was just presented to the Security Council um, at the middle of last week. And you wrote the report, you helped write the report. I, I, helped, um, I helped the tech-driven component. I did the interviews for that. Fantastic. Well, now everything else we talk about today will seem petty and... Uh, Childish or something. <laughs> That's I just, great. you know, That's if you, if you're, if anybody's wondering, you know, exactly what machine learning can do and how it's being used in the real world, this yeah. is, this is how it's being used and how it can be used to, you know, track um, and, and catalog in a meaningful way, enormous amount of uh, amounts of data. You know, they have uh, people, experts working um, who have ex expertise in organized crime who are working on these projects. Um, because, you know, this is an, a criminal enterprise and, you know, being able to track these financial records and then tie those to other crimes and, and persons of interest is fascinating. Yeah. That is what's really the next step? What, so what's the next step on this one, Molly? Like, like does the Security Council, will they review it or like what, what comes next? 
That's a good question. So at, at the at the program last week, um, the two people who are uh, kind of a force behind developing create have the Security Council creating UNITAD, which is um, human rights lawyer Amal Clooney and her client uh, Nadia Murad, who is the who is a Nobel laureate laureate and um, uh, victim rights sexual slavery. Um, anti-sexual slavery advocate. Um, she's a Yazidi who was um, forced into sexual slavery by ISIL and has, is now an advocate in the space. So both of them were appealing to the Security Council to make the next step to prosecute these cases. Um, and so right now, those cases are building and then, um, but they really haven't gained traction. There's a plenty, not plenty of evidence, but you know, kind of how that's presented in international courts is, is the next step. Um, the current advisor, Karim um, Khan, who uh, was the special advisor for UNITAD, uh, was just tapped to be the, um, the uh, to head the International Criminal Court. So he's moving from UNITAD to the ICC. All right. Well, that's that's really fantastic. Uh, thanks for thanks for telling us about that. Um, all right. Let's turn to our guests. And Roy, let's start with you. Uh, you want to uh, tell us about a story you had this week? Yeah, for sure. I don't think it's anywhere near as intriguing as what Molly's been up to. Um, unless you're super into big law and uh, this like uh, work from home or return to the office debate, but um, well, you're talking to the right audience here. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a column about um, a vir the virtual firm, a remote firm, a distributed firm, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, called Fisher Broils, and uh, they've got no office space, and uh, their economic model is a little bit different than traditional big law firms. If you go there and bill work that you generate, you probably get to keep about 80% of the uh, fees you collect, which is obviously a lot more than uh, people get at big law firms. Um, but the impetus for the story was that they had finally cracked the AMLA 200, which um, is obviously kind of a prestigious um, list. And this particular um, remote firm, Fisher Broyles, had been saying that they're going to accomplish that for a few years uh and hadn't quite done it yet um and it's not totally like a pandemic story that they made it on that list this year i think it is more like coincidental if anything uh, i think their revenue grew about 15 percent from a year ago which is good but not absolutely out of control from what a lot of firms did last year it was of course a really good year for a lot of law firms um, and since I think 2017, the revenue had grown about 85%. So, um, but what I was focusing on in the article was about how I think they always wanted to become part of the MLA 200 so they could say, Hey, look, you know, we're not that different from you. You should, shouldn't be so reluctant to make the move from, you know, big law firm X to, to Fisher Broyles. Um, uh, but at this moment when everybody's been working remote, for a year, um, big law firms kind of, in a way, never looked more like uh, Fisher Broyles. So I just have, I just am curious how that will affect the potential recruits that this, that these, that Fisher Broyles and others like it would uh, view it as. You know, if you 
some some big law partners really love going to the office. You know, that's kind of like their home away from home, and they spend more time there than probably anywhere else. And uh, they're going to go back to an office that probably won't look the way it did or feel the way it did, at least for some time. Um, and I could just kind of envision people um, walking down empty offices, realizing that if they're equity partners, they're paying for this, and um, maybe they they figure what's the point, and they're more likely to go back to the remote setting and try to keep more of the money that they bill. So um, it's just kind of an open question. I have re- really no clue. I think Fisher Broyles has been somewhat successful in attracting the type of uh, partners that that are that it makes sense to join. And there's a question in here about how do they assemble and compensate people for big big deals. I think that's something that they struggle to do, probably compared to a traditional big law firm. Um, but they have these sort of fee sharing agreements between um, between the partners. So if I were to bring in a case in and um, somebody else here was to was to work on it there'd be some sort of it's all percentage based so um at any rate that that's but that's part of the sort of profile of partner who i think is more likely to join it's probably someone who is in a big law firm but for the most part you know generates and handles most of their own work they're probably types of siloed attorneys who frankly a lot of big law firms probably wouldn't mind leaving so um it's interesting their their profits per partner are pretty low right they were the second lowest in the m law 200 i think you said yeah that's right i mean it's a bizarre firm from an m law perspective i mean for instance every single part every single lawyer there was categorized as an equity partner um which you know the uh the uh the definition of that is just somebody who gets 50% or more of their compensation from firm profits, which I think is a really difficult metric, especially when the firm itself says that you get 80% of the revenue. So I don't know how exactly that works, but it's definitely not like an apples to apples comparison between Fisher Broyles profitability and, and then yeah. a typical law firm. Yeah. I want, I wonder Roy is on, uh, now that clients have become more and more used to lawyers working remotely, whether <clears throat> they'll be more willing to uh, hire a firm like Fisher Broyles, uh, who are all remote, because as many have seen now, it doesn't make that much difference with respect to client service, unless you're a client that you know, likes to go visit your lawyer in the office. But my experience, you know, in a fairly large law firm is that's I mean, if a client wanted to see me, I usually had to go to them. <laughs> they didn't want to come yeah. to me. And so I wonder if that if that's going to be a catalyst for them getting more work. The other thing that's, I think, really interesting is is the sort of eat what you kill compensation system they have. And I, when I, for many years when I practiced, I was with a firm like that. And it really brought out the entrepreneurs uh, among the, the equity partners, those that were willing to, you know, cut, scrape around, hustle around and, and get business. And uh, so that's uh, that's an interesting, most firms have gone away from that, uh, as you know, mm-hmm. over the years for for a variety of reasons, some of which are good and maybe some of which aren't. But it's interesting that they, to me, that they still have that system. And uh, 
So it'd be, I think it'll be cool to see how, how things play out over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. On the client point, I think it's just another example of all the changes, like just the behavioral stuff that see what sticks, what doesn't. Yeah. Say from, I'll say from a recruiting perspective about, I'd say six or seven months ago, uh, these virtual firms, Fisher, Fisher Broyles and others in that space were just recruiting like gangbusters. Uh, partners were willing to take their calls, which hadn't been before because they started thinking, wait a minute, I, I do this remotely now. Like, why can't I get mm -hmm. 80% of my money? It was, it was interesting. It was a real feeding frenzy for a while there. Especially yeah, when the, the firms, sorry, I was just oh. going to say, especially when the firm stopped paying distributions partners, that's, I think it was a catalyst too. But go ahead, Victor, what you got? Yeah, I, I definitely feel like, cause I, you know, we've, uh, you know, we've, we've done, like, we've done quite a bit on Fisher Bros last, just since the pandemic started. And just kind of like, on the one hand, you have to kind of feel like, well, you know, this pandemic, you don't want to say that, that they got lucky, but like, you know, it definitely came about at, at, at a good time for them. You know, they were, you know, they were poor, they were already kind of poised to break into the, to the, to the AMLOT 200, to the second hundred, uh, you know, they've been growing at a, at a decent rate. And then once the pandemic hit then they were like, well, Hey, we've been doing this all along, you know, maybe, maybe we're, we're, we, you know, we, we have a model that you guys could all follow, or we have a model that could serve as something for the, for the, uh, for the, for the legal industry as a whole. So it's definitely interesting sort of like, you know, how that, how that all kind of came together for them. I mean, not to say obviously, you know, with the, you know, benefiting off the pandemic and whatnot, but they were definitely in a position where they could benefit off their expertise and their, and, and, and the bet that they made, you know, many years beforehand. So it's, it's definitely interesting. And one thing that, that actually, um, uh, um, uh, I, li I like the point that you made, Roy, about how like, you know, a lot of, a lot of these big law firms, you know, they don't want these kind of lawyers anyway, because it's like, all, they're all about synergy. They're all about like, you know, having, bringing in a client and having them serve many different, many different departments, many different lawyers, many different partners and whatnot. So, you know, the, so, so, the, so the model might not be for everybody, but for those lawyers who are more independent minded, who are more kind of like, you know, keeping their, keeping their books to themselves portably and whatnot, you know, um, it, it, might, it might be a good model for them, but then obviously it, it, it creates other problems too, because then what happens if they get a better offer with guaranteed money from another, from a big firm when things get better, then, you know, they're off to like Kirkland or to like to wherever. So it, it'll definitely be interesting to see where they go from here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, uh, let's move on to Julie. What do you got this week? Yeah, I'm going to take another turn here. It's <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to talk about legal operations uh, and the latest data coming out of the corporate what's their name again? Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, the CLOC. And, and of course, they, they put out data um, quite regularly about what's going on in that market. Um, yeah, last but, week, we talked about their conference a little bit that they had just had. Uh, so uh, this is good. This is timely. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. So the, the thing that really struck out to me in this uh, short article from Canadian Lawyer is um, three, three quick things uh, that the spending increased during the pandemic. I did not see that um, coming. Um, and, and of course that was fueled by the biotech industry and the biotech industry right now is, is really, really booming. And, and I've been in some rooms on Clubhouse about the intersection with biotech and legal tech. So I know there are legal entrepreneurs who are trying to get into this space. Um, and, and then talking about the two major points that in-house counsel are focused on next year, which is diversity and inclusion and automation. And I was surprised that diversity and inclusion was number one. It said 60% of in-house counsel um, 
are, are looking to implement diversity and inclusion programs in their departments. And so for, for external law firms and others looking to, to get contracts with in-house counsel, this is going to be a huge shift. Because uh, as we know, there has been some movement uh, with in-house counsel to, to bring this topic to the forefront, particularly when they are outsourcing work um, to large firms, but it, it really hasn't, th these numbers tell me, okay, if, if the majority of in-house counsel are looking at it this year, uh, there's going to be a major shift going on in, in the legal market. So a couple You're of- about diversity within the department or diversity of outside counsel and, yeah. and service providers and- this is the thing that I'm not clear from clock because I went through the report and they don't specify what they mean by a diversity inclusion program. And I think that's the, what you just said, Bob, are two completely different things, right? Diversity inclusion within their own departments or diversity inclusion when they're outsourcing work or third category, diversity inclusion within their entire organization in and of itself. Because I've done reporting on this in the past where um, I've interviewed in-house counsel from Deloitte and Microsoft, where both of those organizations have very comprehensive diversity and inclusion policies that includes their legal departments. So working with outside counsel, um, diversity within their departments is included for those in-house departments, but CLOCK doesn't really get into the detail. So that to me is the question. When we say 60% are interested, what do we mean? by a diversity and inclusion program. Yeah, it looks like Joe posted the uh, text in the chat, if not, not any clearer, <laughs> it doesn't clarify that question at all. Uh, well, you know, we, we uh, this was the year in which we saw the, the, the odd fiasco around Coca-Cola and their GC's uh, diversity uh, efforts. Uh, and uh, apparently, uh, you don't want to come down with too heavy a hand on pushing for diversity because uh, that's not going to be well received, I guess, uh, from corporate superiors. Um, but uh, that was an interesting uh, development this year. Any other thoughts or questions or anything on comments on this? No, I, I guess I would just note that uh, it, it's, it's interesting. I was just reading the other day that the Florida Supreme Court um, has now not allowed CLE credit for, for programs and entities that have diversity goals, quotas, and standards, um, which was just absolutely stunning to me in a lot of ways. Uh, and and Stunning right up until you heard the word Florida. That probably has <laughs> kicked you off. Yeah, their concern is the quotas. Uh, primarily, but it's every time I ask about this, it's still open for comment. But it would it would not allow any CLE to be certified in in Florida that requires that has a diversity quota. I was stunned too. Yeah, I thought it, it was, was uh, yeah. just, until I heard Florida. It, yeah, right. well, as was, was one of my friends puts it, Florida. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Uh, all right. Well. Um, Joe, you want to uh, tell us about your piece this week? Sure. Uh, so on this topic of AI and all the things it can do, I actually had a very interesting conversation with the folks at Black Boiler about, about the way in which we talk about AI and whether or not it's, whether or not it's the best way that we can talk about it. And 
kind of there's a the way it was outlined is that there there is a quandary basically because if you're a vendor trying to sell uh, in this case contract uh, contract AI you you put we do contract AI in your title because that way you're going to be it's going to maximize your search engine it's something that people can kind of grasp whatever but the reality is that these different AI platforms do very different things uh, in the life cycle of a deal. And the argument that they were making, which I thought was very compelling, was, hey, maybe we need to get a little bit more sophisticated. Like, you can have this top-line contract AI, but we really need to boil down and create a taxonomy of these, you know, these are, you know, ones that categorize language. These are ones that look semantically at stuff. These are ones that do X, Y, Z and uh, outlined, you know, five to seven, depending on whether you split some of them in half, uh, broad categories of what these different platforms do. And the whole argument is maybe we should be talking about this with this sort of specificity, both because the market should be, you know, more educated about what's out there, about what they're buying, but also just to keep people educated about what even is out there. Because if you, if you're a firm that just buys one of these products and you think you've got yourself covered, uh, it may you may not even understand that there's a product that can do this other task that would be very helpful. Uh, and so I, I kind of took it as a, a lesson for myself of I'm going to do my best to be a little bit more specific, use some of these tools that they've outlined. And, you know, maybe they aren't the perfect tools either. Like maybe there's more evolution to be had about what the actual taxonomy should be, although I thought they were pretty good. Uh, but that we should do our best to use these more specific terms to keep the market aware that there's distinctions. Uh, but yeah, it was very interesting because, you know, we all, we all do it. But when we see these demos, they do very different things. Uh, and we know that. And then I don't think we necessarily communicate that all the time with easy to understand language when we write about it. I have a, I have a question because um, I, you know, I read the article and I thought, yeah, we definitely need a taxonomy, but I want to take a step back. Do, do, do people know what AI is? Well, right. You, you know what I mean? Before we start talking about subcategories, did you people yeah. know when we're saying AI, what we actually mean by AI? Cause I, cause in the tech world, there's, there's a little bit yeah. not of a consensus about this either. Well, and I definitely feel like, I feel as though when I go to these shows that that's getting better. But I, I mean, I, I remember five or six years ago, the word AI was basically magic beans and it applied to anything that did, did anything, whether that was actually doing any machine learning or not. Uh, it was just a hot buzzword. Uh, I think it's gotten a little bit more sophisticated, but I mean, uh, several years ago, a certain company, I won't name, but it rhymes with by BM. Uh, they were uh, talking about how, oh, we're going to be able to use use AI to clone David Boyce's brain and you can buy a license to use him on your case. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? There's no way that, that we're at that point. Uh, but that was the that was the hype cycle. Um, I think it's gotten better. When I go to things now, people talk more about AI as though it's a, just a tool. It's not this crazy uh, magic thing. Uh, even though it can do some pretty magic things, uh, it it's understood as as what its limitations are, which I hope is getting out there. But yeah, maybe we do need to step back and do a little bit more how AI works. 
Well, we're, we're all really loosey-goosey about the AI terminology. I mean, it, it's not just, I don't know if, 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 you know, it's not just the reporters, it's the companies themselves that are very unspecific. Yep. Uh, and often, you know, uh, they're often wanting to call everything, as we've talked about before, they want to call everything AI, even when it maybe it isn't AI. Yep. And, you know, and, and there's, everybody is sort of taking advantage of the fact that, that AI can kind of be whatever you want it to be in, in the tech world. You know, there was the, the old joke about a, AI is, you know, is, is what you call technology until it gets adopted or something like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just, just a real problem of terminology there. Yeah, it's kind of like when, uh, I mean, like for a while, e-discovery companies, they all they all had to have predictive coding, or they all had to have TAR. It was like everything, right. otherwise, otherwise, you know, people wouldn't even pay attention to it. It's like, oh, well, you're antiquated, yeah. you're, you're behind the times. So I definitely understand that as, from a branding perspective. I mean, uh, I think a couple of years ago when uh, when, De when Jason Tashay was still on staff, he wrote like some, a column talking about this issue about how like, kind of like, how do you define AI? Like it, sometimes something, it starts out as AI, but then after it gets adopted and, and, and accepted by more and more people, then it's no longer just AI, it's just technology. And then right. sometimes you have to like kind of specify, well, what does it actually do? Is it machine learning? Is it uh, this, is it that? So it's just, you know, it, 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 it's something, it's definitely something that, that, that's that been kind of brewing for a little while as far as like, you know, what is AI? And then there's one line in here that kind of hurt me specifically. It said, I will stop using pictures of robot arms and, and whatnot. And I was like, well, I like the robot arms, but you know, because <laughs> because that that gets people freaked out and that gets people to read. But then again, that's probably not from the best thing from a from an accuracy perspective, and I, I kind think kind of you know. Sticking, so, go ahead, Wally. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, sticking with Jason Tache, he also didn't like comparisons um, to like TurboTax, turbo the TurboTax <laughs> of, and I and I used to agree with that until I started working more with startups and realized actually, you know, comparing it to something that's already had wide adoption helps people understand what the product does. Um, in a way, even if it's not a, you know, apples to apples match, it's, it's similar enough that they can understand the technology. That's one of the challenges with using AI is, you know, people know, they think they know what AI is. It's cool. It's innovative. It, it, um, it helps, um, you know, with efficiency and um, makes, helps me make smarter decisions, something like that. That's all it really, they need to know to maybe get um, a concept to the next level. Uh, I, you know, I spent a lot of time working with companies that are trying to communicate a really um, uh, nuanced tech solution and trying to communicate that to a general audience is really tricky <laughs> and trying to get the, the technologists out of their own way and talk about what, what it actually does and the solution it provides right. is, is a hurdle. So, you know, this is a huge, I think it's a huge issue for, for everybody, for reporters writing about it to different audiences, to the technology companies that are trying to sell and try to explain what, the, what it is they do and why it matters. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's a great, that's a great point, Molly, because, you know, I, I sort of get the sense that at least with a lot of practicing lawyers, it's almost to the point where you're, you know, they hear AI and they hear bullshit, you know, uh, because it's it's kind of been overhyped and it hasn't it hasn't been explained what it is that it really does. Um, and so, you know, it it sometimes I think the technologists are sort of getting, like you said, in their own way when they when they start spouting off about AI and I'm really interested in that, you know. So what? You know, so. Yeah, like so many things, it depends on your audience and who are you writing for and uh, how technologically 
you know, uh, obtuse do you want to be in, in describing what it is you're writing about? I mean, I, the, the, the flip side of that is sometimes I talk to tech people who've helped develop products and, and they are totally incapable of explaining it in a way that I can understand, let alone my readers understand. Uh, you know, sometimes they're so into the weeds on these things that they can't put it into plain English. So, uh, you know, it, it goes both ways, I guess. Yeah. I've read a column to, to, oh, go ahead, Julie. No, sorry, Roy. I was just gonna quickly say, going back to Molly's comment, um, just putting on my communications hat, I see AI now as a marketing buzzword, kind of like how we use sustainability or eco-friendly years ago. Um, I've talked to some companies where I'm like, this is just automation, you know, and, and, and this was talked about in the clock report too, where the second theme was automation. Some companies are doing some things that are actually not very advanced, but they'll just yeah. put AI there so that they get our attention to write about them. And that's yeah. the stuff that I'm really, 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 really don't like. And this is why I don't write about blockchain all the time either, because there are some people who really are doing some fun technological things in there. And then there's some people who have hired someone like Molly or myself to say, hey, just put AI or blockchain there. You'll get some attention, you'll get some press, and, and, and that's how you'll get some clients. And we have to do a better job too of calling out that BS. That's a good point. I, I was going to say, I wrote a column about a guy, a founder of like a legal tech company. I can't remember what it was. So this loses a lot of luster, but he, his point was, I, I don't want to use AI. He, it was like a simple tagline, like we do X, Y, or Z, you know, and then he could explain it real well. And it was like, I was like, is this AI? And he <laughs> was like, yeah, but I don't want to be categorized that way because it's irrelevant to the fact that this is sort of the problem that I'm solving. But I think one of the challenges that a lot of these companies have is that they're developed very sort of niche products, you know, like they develop in the case of black boiler, they do redlining. Right. So, um, you know, how do you get immediate, how do you get the journalists excited about some niche thing? Like, Hey, all you redliners out there, we're, you know, like, are you sick of, you know, What's our audience and, and how do we communicate that way? So, but I was going to say, I think, I do think that, that uh, Dan Broderick at Black Boiler is an interesting guy. I've spoken with him before. And one of the things he, he says is that, which gets your attention is he says that he thinks there's $35 billion spent on, uh, on contract review and negotiating contracts among major companies. And then he goes further to say that he thinks seven billion of it is spent specifically doing the exact thing that he thinks Black Boiler can do for you. I mean, obviously it's a great pitch to investors, and you know if you tell them you're at a seven billion dollar market opportunity, but at least there's some, you know, a figure there that that is helpful for storytelling at, at the very least. But right, number those numbers talk. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, segue over to my own story pick this week only because I think it's sort of related in the sense that uh, one of the other uh, areas uh, of uh, th that we talk about a lot, but we haven't ever really defined very well is teaching tech in law schools. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where everybody agrees we ought to be doing it, uh, but uh, nobody seems to have great agreement on how to do it. 
Uh, I know a couple of years ago, uh, you know, probably a lot of you saw Dan, when Dan Lennon was doing his uh, uh, index to try and track uh, both innovation in law firms and also sort of innovation in teaching about tech and innovation at law schools. I think he kind of, I think he's largely abandoned that. I don't think he's updated it too much uh, since then. Um, but I, I had somebody on my podcast this week, not not fair, it's not a story, I have to listen to the podcast, but I just thought she was really interesting. It's April Dawson, who's a, a law professor at uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law. Uh, she's interesting because she's a former computer programmer before she went to law school, uh, went to law school, practiced, was an actual real live practicing lawyer, first in the Justice Department, then on her own as a litigator, uh, used tech a lot in her practice, and now teaches tech and is also a, uh, a scholar of pedagogy, essentially, about how to teach. She, she teaches about how to teach. She teaches professors about how to teach tech. Uh, and I'd actually seen her do a presentation at ABA Tech Show on this question of how do we teach tech to law students? And I thought it was just a great presentation. So I had her on my podcast just to talk about it further. Uh, you know, and it's pretty basic stuff, but what's interesting, and I'm going to see if, I, I, I was trying to think, I don't think her tech show paper is still available. I think the tech show papers are not available anymore. I was going to see if I would, she might let me uh, post her paper or something on my blog because, you know, she goes through kind of right, like specify, here's the topics we should teach. And here, you know, here are some of the ways that we should be teaching them. And she talks about who should be teaching them. And it shouldn't be, you know, not, we all know this, but it shouldn't be your standard law professors because most of them don't know a darn thing about technology. Uh, and it should be practitioners who are using this stuff in some way in the field. Um, and, and that the teaching shouldn't just be teaching, that it should be using, that, that law students should be getting immersed in the same technologies that we're going to be expecting them to use as, as practitioners once they get out of law school. Uh, and that means in clinical programs, uh, but it also means, you know, even as simply as in a legal writing program or something uh, that, that uh, uh, the kinds of technology that lawyers are using should be, should be uh, imbued into all of those programs. So, uh, you know, well, I, so curious. again, I think it's just really interesting. Yeah. Is this the in the weeds technology, Bob? Like, like the actual like using Excel as a lawyer, or is it, you know, understanding technology and technological innovation? Because, I, and I ask because you know there's there's a dispute about there's a debate about whether lawyers should have to know everything or whether they have to have just a, you know. A, um, enough understanding to be able to communicate with technologists and other members of teams. Right. So I think she starts at sort of the same level as like Procertus, uh, uh, where they talk about, you know, teaching the basics of, of Word and Excel and, and, and uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but she does get into, uh, under, to the point of understanding, understanding enough for a lawyer to be competent about you know, analytics and AI and just some of the big areas and, you know, not getting into the weeds on them, but understanding what they can do and how they can be used uh, and how they can impact what the lawyers are doing, how they can impact uh, clients. Data storage is another one that she talks about a lot. Uh, you know, and again, not getting into the weeds, but she's just very mindful of, of the duty of technology competence uh, and the fact that that presumes uh, a, 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 very basic, at least, level understanding of a lot of these technologies. You know, I uh, it's obviously been 
a little bit of time since I've been in law school, but uh, I do teach a, a class on, to practicing lawyers on using trial presentation technology, technology in the courtroom. And one thing that, that I've noted from that is as, as you let, let them work with it and experience it and figure out how to, to use it effectively, their attitude toward, toward technology in general changes and they become much more open to technology in general. I think you made a good point, Bob, when you said a lot of the law school professors probably aren't using technology in the classroom to some extent to communicate their message to, to people. And you know, just having that example of your professors using effectively technology to persuade, convince, and teach would have to have a probably a lasting impact on, on students in, in, a, in a very powerful way. Yeah, April actually also does a series of courses for the was American Association of Law Schools or something like that, um, that on for professors on how to use technology to be more effective uh, uh, communicators and, and, and teachers. So uh, it's really interesting area. So I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this just because I, I really do think it's it's important for, for lawyers to know about the technology and to be able to converse with multidisciplinary teams. Um, but I worry about getting too far into the weeds with coding. And, you know, I do think there are offshoots and that, that these, yeah. that folks need to be trained in these in legal, um, in these disciplines in legal, but those aren't like all lawyers in a regular, in a main curriculum. Um, so I, so the two areas that I've focused most on lately are that, 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 in, which I always forget the iFlip, name Institute for the Future of Law Practice, um, I think does a really good job uh, at that. And it comes at a price point that no law school could do. And so what I'm, what I'm seeing is that they're getting adoption by law schools using their program and having their students go through their program. Um, and then the other one is the Bucerius uh, uh, legal, legal Tech Essentials. Um, program that I'm in the middle of, or I'll wrapping up, but it'll be last, next week is the last week of that, where it's a really kind of intensive overview of, you know, these components of legal tech that were really beneficial to lawyers. It doesn't make you an expert in these spaces, but it helps, it would help them converse with multidisciplinary um, teams. Yeah, and I yeah. just wanted yeah. to, sorry, Bob, go ahead. That's, you know, that's a particularly interesting point for, for litigators who, uh, you know, who have to depose people, particularly business litigators, and having some working knowledge of technology. I don't know how you could be an effective litigator, business litigator, corporate litigator, without that kind of working technology. You'd, you'd be swamped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just because say she's, she's not talking about coding, that kind of stuff, not necessarily. I mean, she's just saying her cat, I just found her list of her categories. They, the, the broad categories she talks about are law, law students should understand information storage, communication technology, discovery, research and analysis, marketing technology, and something called technology resilience, which is being able to assess the benefits and risks of technology for themselves and their clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just gonna <laughs> do that disclaimer because I was at her presentation at the ABA Tech Show, but I, I will be the, the person in the room who says, I would love it if some lawyers learn how to code not because I want them to build programs or become experts, but I see coding as learning Spanish or French. It's learning another language. And I think it actually helps the person holistically. As somebody who learned how to code in high school, it has helped me tremendously, even though I've never built a single program. So yeah. 
I just wanted to put that in the out there. And yeah. I think it would also be good, especially as like the legal ecosystem opens up and you see a little, you see different type of job and career opportunities in legal for lawyers. Uh, I was just thinking about Connie Brenton, one of the founders of CLAC. She started a program, I believe in 2019, like a legal ops internship program. So there's different opportunities. And of course, legal ops, they're role isn't just software and they're definitely not coding anything, but you have to be aware of like software, especially with the big four, some of their new job opportunities, there's more tech focus and legal tech vendors are starting to recruit or be um, launched by lawyers. So I think it's important to like have that foundation of technology. So it isn't seen as just like a scary off thing, like, oh, I have to be a coder to be able to kind of like use my legal skills. And so I could see like, it's becoming a little bit more like you kind of need to know, at least make in law school, they should be trying to make lawyer, law school students a little bit more not afraid of tech and just kind of saying like, hey, this is another career opportunity for you if you're not able to go immediately into a law firm. Yeah. Um, I definitely think well, that there's, yeah, there's like a happy medium that you can draw because I mean, you know, it's not like you're, like you're going to go to law school to become a computer scientist or to get, you know, an advanced degree in like, you know, coding or, you know, IT or whatnot. But on the other hand, I mean, there is a reason why the stereotype of law school is that it's full of people who are afraid of technology, afraid of science, afraid of math, afraid of all that stuff. I mean, when I was in law school, uh, you know, I got the, uh, oh, the internet will never catch on speech from our legal research and writing professor. So we actually had to use the books for, uh, for our memos and like we couldn't rely on, um, well, back then it was it was using CDs for, um, for uh, using CDs for uh, for LexisNexis and Westlaw and whatnot. So so uh, so we actually weren't allowed to rely on those things. We had to rely on the books and show that we we use the books to actually uh, write our memos and whatnot. So you know you know there's no reason to have to like to have to maintain that mentality, obviously. But you know any any little any little bit of of trying to encourage people to you know, just break out of that mentality and trying to embrace technology just just even 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 for themselves would, would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, it has a it has an impact on on what people coming out of law school will do in the future as as the legal work kind of contracts to the real bespoke work. It, there'll be room for people with law degrees that can do other things that can assist that. Sorry Bob I interrupted you and I apologize. Oh no! I was just gonna. I was just gonna uh, try and move on to the next topic. We're getting getting short on. Uh, I figured that was the case. Short on these on these uh, things. Um, and uh, I, Victor, you you kind of have some bad news for uh, some of those uh, lawyers who might be a little behind on their tech uh, here. Yeah, that's a good segue, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so for so for the five of you out there who still use Internet Explorer, I, I, I don't know how to break it to you. Uh, Microsoft is no longer going to be, um, you know, supporting Microsoft, uh, Internet Explorer. And, you know, this is actually a big step for 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 me and people of my generation, because we were of the generation where you couldn't buy a computer without Internet Explorer. And actually, I think that was actually one of the reasons why they got in trouble with the Justice Department in the 90s. So, um you know, this it, it, it was obviously a very emotional day for me. Um, but all, all joking aside, I mean, I know a lot of a lot of offices are still very much wedded to Internet Explorer. My wife's office, actually, they um, their programs are, are are optimized for Internet Explorer, and she can't work from home uh, unless unless we download like some program that emulates uh, Internet Explorer. So, <laughs> so it, it just got me thinking about just like a lot of like other like kind of obsolete technologies that, or not obsolete, but like. Technologies that are that are that are clearly have clearly run their course that are clearly no longer the best that are clearly you know 
really should be put out to pasture by now that lawyers still rely on. I mean, I know WordPerfect is still used by a lot of lawyers. Um, you know, when I practiced, you know, we, they, they sat us all down beforehand. They were like, okay, how many people use, use WordPerfect? And like two hands went up. And how many people use Microsoft Word? And like 80 hands went up. And there's just like, well, are you 80 people? You better learn, you better learn to love Microsoft, uh, uh, you better learn to love WordPerfect. So I saw, I, I saw it was interesting and it's kind of a, kind of a fun story. Well, yeah, Molly has in the chat there, what, what are the courts going to do, which I'm really curious to hear. And I do know of some big firms in Canada who are still using Internet Explorer. Yeah, one of the Bucerius speakers said that they, they, they keep uh, uh, Internet Explorer only for courts, development for courts, because it's still a mainstay. So, yikes. Scary. Uh, all right, uh, Victoria, what do you got? Um, there was an article that my colleague Frank Reddy wrote earlier this week about Joe Biden and an executive order that he passed concerning cybersecurity. And he wrote from the angle of how would that impact legal tech? Um, and for the most part, it won't it won't impact cloud uh, legal tech companies too much because the executive order like um, has requirements with tech companies that work with the federal government. Um, the requirements include encryption, multi-factor authentication, which for the most part, cloud-based cloud legal tech companies are already implementing. And also the um, order includes a requirement that um, takes out con contractual obligate barriers that may prevent IT service providers from sharing details about a breach. And according to the legal tech companies that Frank spoke to, they said that won't be too much of a hassle. And they said it actually improves like mitigating and solving breach incidents or um, actual breaches. And I also wrote about um, <laughs> this week, um, digital CLEs. And because of 2020 and the pandemic, a lot of states, um, they um, waive their in-person CLE requirements. And looking into now, like, are they going to continue that? And I only spoke to, um, Georgia was the only state that I was able to get on the phone that said like they, they are looking into potentially like um, waiving permanently their in-person CLE requirements, but they're looking to see like, okay, does this actually help um, our lawyers? You know, a lot of the um, state CLE regulators that I spoke to, they said, of course we need to do digital CLEs because of like health concerns and vendors even had limitations on in-person meetings. But they said you do, they, a lot of them mentioned about you lose some of the camaraderie of bringing together people for these CLEs. So it's kind of like an interesting like development. I'm wondering like, is that something that like, oh, we, we talked about kind of like courts and providing more like, um, digital or less in-person types of legal services that help access to justice and provide some more efficiencies and video conferencing some legal proceedings and private law as well it's just kind of like and we've already discussed about like hey that might not actually be a reality like once maybe in 2022 things will look a lot like it did in 2019 and digital CLEs and just kind of like waiving that in-person requirement I'm kind of wondering like is that something that we'll see a lot of states go back to and just saying hey we did this before and we'll just, you know, go back to like um, setting this requirement that you have to use some of your um, CLEs in person. That was interesting. And George is looking into that, like, hey, we might move that permanently. Why not? Any comments on that or? Yeah, I just have a question because um, this, where we are in the pandemic is very different state by state. 
So if the state bar decides to say, okay, well, you need to come back in person, um, I can see some lawyers legitimately saying that's not possible for me and I'm going to have to, you know, file against that because I can't go in person because, you know, I don't have access to the vaccine yet or, or whatever. So I'm just wondering if you've heard from anyone discussing those issues. It was interesting that Georgia already said last week that they, that they, they, extended, they extended the waiver of in-person CLEs, given Georgia was one of the first states in the country to open back up. And they said because vendors, not enough vendors are willing to have like in-person meetings or like there's a limitation on it. So I think it's also based on like vendors and of course, like them saying like how comfortable do we feel having in-person meetings or even like their state um, regulations. So I do think like it's a little bit of push like people are saying they just don't feel comfortable bringing people in, back together. So I think that's like a, a major player in it. And it's just kind of, it really kind of surprised me that Georgia, when they say that open up, uh, was one of the quickest states to reopen, they even said they don't have people that are comfortable enough um, housing and bringing together a bunch of different people together for CLEs. Interesting. I'm in Massachusetts where we don't have CLEs, so uh, I'm not worried about it. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Steve, I know you want to talk about the MLA 200, but we kind of talked about them a little bit with Roy's story, so we can uh, maybe uh, table that today. And uh, I think we're just about out of time. Sometimes we have rants and raves at the end. But uh, I don't think we have time for that today, unless anybody has a repressing rant or rave they want to get out there. No, good. Come right. on, Joe. You have an entire podcast that's pretty much rants. I even yeah. like dropped, I wrote about it last week and I dropped raves out of it because there are no raves. It's all rants. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, we are at our time. So everyone can go to Thinking Like a Lawyer and listen to our ranting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. Well, thanks to everybody for participating this week, and we will be back again uh, next week. Thanks to our guests for helping us today. I really appreciated your insights and input. It was great to have you. See you Thank all you. next Thank week. Bye, guys. Thanks, everybody.